So, Kirk, do you ha- you were said when I called you earlier, you said you were crunching numbers. Is that true? Yeah, I've got a, a detailed sabermetric analysis of the impact of Coco Crisp's hair on his performance. Oh, brilliant! Okay. And it is. Let me tell you, when Billy Bean gets a hold of these numbers, you're going to see a lot more afro. Okay. What I what what I want to know is, will this be a new chapter in the book on uh, um, what was the book called? <laughs> Moneyball. Moneyball. Welcome, Mr. and Mrs. America and all the ships at sea. Harness your pets and wake the kids, because it's time once again for Media Loper Bebop. This is episode three, Conversation Fear. And on our show this week is the rise of Netflix instant killing video piracy. Why using a browser to access the internet is so 20th century. And finally, the first inductee to the Media Loper Great Albums Hall of Fame. All this and the Coco Crisp Afro Watch. I'm your host, Jim Connolly, and to discuss all of this are the usual suspects. Tim Gaskell. I'm here. And Kurt Biglioni. Present. In the past year or so, Netflix Instant has absolutely exploded, with nearly 23 million households now subscribing to the service, and, according to some reports, it accounts for 40% or nearly 40% of U.S. internet usage in the evening. So my question to you guys is this. Given that it's clearly obvious that people are willing to pay for high-quality streams of TV and film, will Netflix instant kill video piracy? Well, you know, that's the fear. <laughs> it's, it's interesting. Netflix became the, the largest subscription entertainment service in the U.S. A couple weeks ago, it became official. They're bigger than Comcast now. Mm-hmm. And clearly, streaming is the future of their business. Clearly, this is what consumers are into. They're actually paying money, despite all of these things you hear about piracy. It's actually easier for us to pay whatever it is we pay Netflix every month than it is to actually go track down what we want to see and download it, burn it or move it to a box or whatever. People assume that piracy is one of the forms of competition for entertainment dollars. And people assume that piracy would win because it's free. But in reality, it's not free. There's this concept of the transaction cost, which is more than just the price. It includes you know, the effort involved in finding it, acquiring it, and making use of it. And with piracy, that's a fairly high transaction cost. Uh, and the quality. And the quality, too, that unknown. So with something like Netflix, it's like a no-brainer. Why would you go to BitTorrent when you can find you know, a million things to watch on Netflix? And instantly, and rather than two hours to have it down. Right. To your, to your TV in HD. Well, sometimes not so HD, depending on your broadband connection. Well, and, yeah. well, and but also depending on the deals they have with the content owners. They've got not only windows of availability, but windows of quality. They've got all of these windows that are being built into uh, you know something that you want to watch, uh, you see is, is available, and then when you're ready to watch it in two weeks, it's gone. Yeah. All this stuff is going on in terms of licensing that's actually making it harder for the, the legal alternative that people clearly want. They're making it harder for it to work. Yep. Piracy has a chance. Hollywood might be its last hope. Just the way they tend to do business, they might actually, this might be the last hope for piracy. That they create a world where pirated content is still better than the legal alternative. 
for a while the the Netflix stream of Lost, the HD Netflix stream of Lost was higher quality than our regular DVDs on you know a 1080p TV. And so we were watching it that way, despite the fact we owned the DVDs. And then all of a sudden, one month, boom, no more Lost. From a consumer standpoint, that is incredibly frustrating. Yes. Well, and you're going to be seeing a lot more of that because the studios now are afraid of Netflix because they clearly have – they're the dominant service. They've but, got – you know, they've got – Every box that supports any sort of internet video supports Netflix, mm -hmm. and they're a huge presence now in terms of total entertainment dollar flowing in, largest subscription service. So now you're starting to see, you know, where studios are wanting to either charge them more, make the terms more restrictive, uh, limit access, shorter windows, um, and this doesn't benefit them at all. But you know, this is just an example of Hollywood playing games and consumers getting screwed. But let's also look at there are many alternatives to Netflix as well. Everybody's jumping into the game right now. You've got just today it was announced that YouTube has added 3,000 new movies to their movie service. And they're free, and they're, but they're ad-supported. So you get a little ad at the beginning, which I'm fine with. I'll watch a 30-second ad to watch a, an hour-and-a-half movie or whatever. That's, that's great. Um, you know, you've got, you've, you've got Amazon. If you're an Amazon Prime member, you've got free streaming for a lot of stuff. And, of course, there's Hulu Plus, which just um, made a deal for the entire Criterion collection. Which is awesome. It's yeah, a, That's a total killer app for a lot of people going to Hulu Plus, I think. This is why I have barely any cable service at the moment. I've got a bare minimum, bare bones cable service because I've got the Roku and Netflix and everything. So I just pick and choose what I want to watch. It'll be interesting to see how um, Apple TV responds to the range of programming that's available on the Roku. So given all this, there's still plenty of, of reasons, not that I would ever do it, of course, to to go to BitTorrent. And I think the key one is is there are, there are zillions of things available, and yet we could all name TV shows and films that are just not available. Uh, WKRP in Cincinnati with the actual original music. Uh, Batman. Not available even on DVD, for God's sakes. Um, Doctor Who. Do you think a lot of people go to BitTorrent to try to find WKRP with the original music? Well, there's one way you can find out. <laughs> <laughs> have you done it, Jim? I haven't. I, I no. Do you know? You don't have to incriminate yourself. Do you know someone who's done it? Yes. All the original episodes of Mystery Science Theater 3000. Wow. There you go. Are 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 out there with? I mean, there's that's there's so there's two things. One is there's there's the I want. And are those things you could acquire? Well, in the case of WKRP, you with the original music, that's otaku enough that you have to actually get some bootleg because it's not an official product. But are the Mystery Science Theaters all released? Or? No. No. They so have. So what is what is the source of those? Where do they? Where do those videos come from? People have recorded them the from VHS. TV. So, so MST3K is a show that that literally on their end credits would put keep circulating the tapes. One of their one of their big ways of getting new people was word of mouth. So MST3K fans through the 90s would 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 mail tapes to each other back and forth. Those tapes have become the source of I'm sure have become the source of the torrents that are out there and not nearly of everything that they have. That they that they broadcast has been released yet, and so by sharing those on BitTorrent, they're just doing what 
the thing on the it's tape kind of, it's kind of like them to do. Dead, you know engaging yeah, people right. bootleg their shows yeah well th- this is okay this is a product that's not commercially available exactly not all of it so that's a failure of the system to provide the consumer with i mean most instances many many instances of piracy are a result of the marketplace not being able to meet consumer demand exactly right. correct and some of those are territorial related and some of those are just in this case it's just not available right it was a product at some time but now for some reason we can't figure out how to keep it a viable pro- in the digital age of all things when people actually still have an interest in it how hard could that be well, the, and well, this the other part of it too is that for whatever reason, and I think a lot of it is rights. Once again, I think a lot of this comes back down to yeah. to either rights for the original films in MST3K or Batman. There's just been a dispute of who actually owns it for WKRP and a lot of shows from the 70s and 80s and even 90s. The music licensing is a huge deal, and either okay, tell me tell me if you've heard this or not. I just this is a thing I still can't believe is true that the chris isaac was the chris isaac show finally released on dvd no is the reason because they couldn't get the music rights i must be it must be they like they didn't know they would need the music rights for the chris isaac show i it's about a musician (laughs) and his band but there's a lot of music in it they didn't know they would need the music rights for that but they had guest stars every week didn't they a lot of times they had guest stars, but nearly all the music was well. No, that's not true. Chris would sing a duet with somebody, or they would sing on his one of his songs. But you got to remember something: those those songs, even though they were Chris Isaac songs, a lot of them, those still were different performances than the 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 studio albums. So that may be an issue. Is it not even just the specific songs, but the actual performances on the show had a different licensing? And basically, what it comes down to is viability it's not so much whether they can or can't do it it's whether they feel that the music clearance justifies the price the price of releasing it so go to BitTorrent then for the chris isaac show exactly yeah but you didn't hear that from us or or before you know this year you'd go there for doctor <clears throat> who right because all if you were that way inclined because BBC America was always a two or three weeks ahead of, or I'm sorry, BB, the BBC was always two or three weeks ahead of BBC America. This is actually the first season where you could watch Doctor Who here in America the same day, or you know, 12 hours later or whatever, that you could actually watch it in in, the Great, in Great Britain. Yeah, and this is kind of uh, like getting back at the days when when Star Trek: The Next Generation was on. What used to happen when I was living in England? was all the big TNG fans would have friends in the States who would tape it on VHS and then mail over a copy to watch in England, and the people there would have multi-standard players so they could watch an NTSC copy on their TV. And so they would stay up to date because sometimes they were six months behind. Right. So it's it's just the same thing. You know, it basically... You know, you go all the way back to, um, you know, recording and reel-to-reel and cassette tapes and burning DVDs and VH, copying VHS tapes, whatever. It's There's always been a format that we can somehow copy a performance or a show or a movie and pass it on. In a weird way, that's that helps the show in not maybe not the 
in the long term, maybe not the short keeps, term. No, but that's what keeps stuff alive. Absolutely. Yeah. That's what's that's what Well, yeah, and I think the 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 point is that you would expect in the digital era you wouldn't need that sort of bootleg economy. And it's not even really an economy because no. it's being I mean, when fans are passing tapes, they're doing they're they're financing that form of distribution on their own. They're using their own money to buy tapes. They're yep. using their own time to to make copies, and, and they're and and mail. They're using their yeah exactly. So in digital, that shouldn't be a thing, but apparently it still needs to be a thing. Given the rise of mobile computing, people are accessing the internet not via browsers on their computers or even the browsers on their smartphones or their tablets, but rather mobile applications built specifically for those devices. Tim and Kirk, you guys both have iPads. How much of what you used to do via a browser are you now doing on those? I would say about um, about 50% less on my computer now at least, maybe, maybe 70% less on my computer because a lot of the stuff that I would be doing on my computer or my phone was – you know, basically the practical things, checking bank balance, um, <clears throat> ordering prescription things online, whatever, uh, watching stuff, listening to stuff. Now with the iPad, um, it, it the beauty of it is it cuts to the chase. Every every app being so specific to that to its purpose and so fast that it's just it's just far more um, efficient efficient and convenient than than the, the, the laptop even. So I had um, Sony Reader that I sold when I ordered my iPad. So it's not just um, laptop versus desktop, but also like dedicated reading device yep. added to the mix. Single use versus uh, multi-purpose. Well, but also as a as a discrete type of elect electronic device that you know we're trying we're all there's no norm we're all trying to sort out how we use these things and what works best and i've seen a weird reconfiguration of how i spend my time with technology and i definitely spend my time with technology more now as a result of having uh, the ipad but also i mean you know go back a few years we didn't we didn't have iphones we didn't have smartphones so that's another piece of the mix. And to me, it's more of how, as I move through my day, I've got this seamless, in whatever situation or scenario I'm in, I've got, there's a thing that I can use to access whatever I need to access. Depending on the device, sometimes it's better to be an app. Sometimes it's better being a website or the open web in a traditional browser. Definitely when you're on a full-size computer at your desk, that's the case. But even but even at a full size computer, you use apps. I mean, I use TweetDeck for Twitter. Well, it's called it's called software, and it's the basis of personal computing. It's you know, in some ways, we've gone so far over to doing everything that you can think of doing on the web that we've forgotten that we used to have these programs that we used to do specific things like word processors and spreadsheets. And I mean, it's just it's software. Yes, that software was was not necessarily internet connected. It was still a more of a you had the internet, and 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 then you had your desktop software. And now even the software is more net friendly. Everything is. So really the thing that is the thing is that software is becoming net connected. Right. Yes. And Everything. fighting back against the prevalence of moving functionality to the web. 
But guess what? The web is going to fight back because HTML5 and all the stuff people are doing with the latest generation of JavaScript is really awesome and runs and doesn't have to be a native app that you have to develop for every platform. Mm. Well, that's the other half of it, too, is if you're a content provider, you know, you just five years ago, you worried about your website. But now if you're a content provider, you worry about your website, your smartphone app, your tablet app, and each, by the way, more than one smartphone OS, your tablet app, and even now an Internet-connected TV app, all of which need to be maintained and changed as the technology changed. Do the content providers eventually just go screw this? We're just going to go back to a single a single platform. Standards. What the web is the ultimate standard, with intelligent targeting of delivery for different devices. I mean, long term, that's what it's. There will always be software because you know some software is really well written. I mean, there are all kinds of things I can think of that will be better, always be better as native apps on whatever platform you're using. But the web in general becomes the ultimate mode of distributing at least content. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, <clears throat> basically I, I, I would be very surprised if people don't start seeing a lot of sites seeing traffic go down as, as the iPad and the tablets go up because um, – Already, we're seeing a drop off on Kindle use and Kindle purchases. When you know they're kind of crossing, they're 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 crossing. One's going up, one's going down a bit. While people are saying, you know what, now I can just get one thing, and the the Kindle, therefore the Nook, whatever. Even though the Nook, they're trying to make more like a more like an iPad, but you know, it, I think it just means. Yeah, we're going to have one device that we're going to take everywhere. We're going to have a laptop, perhaps, that we keep at home. The main thing I've noticed about the iPad that you don't get for the computer or the laptop is the fact that they are now coming out with things that are so enhanced for the iPad. There's this whole issue with gatekeepers. And the only way, I mean, if you want to sell an app, basically, to run on any kind of iOS device, whether it's an iPod Touch or an iPhone or an iPad, you have to go through Apple. You have to sell through the App Store. And with for, with specific types of content where, I mean, we're talking about like books and magazines, I think, or what we're talking about, newspapers yeah. also. Um, you have to go, if you want to sell that, and you're not going to go through a, like a traditional web-based app, you could go through the App Store. And then there's the whole question of, how, how do in-app purchases work? Well, according to Apple's policy, that's 30%. Yep. 30% of every subscriber and no information about the subscriber. So there's been this tension between publishers of all types and Apple in terms of how much are they going to take on each pur- purchase? Um, how much information do we get in return? Can we let our print subscribers get access to our regular content on, uh, on the iPad without having to pay extra? And Apple has been saying no, although the tide is turning the last week, uh, it looks like with Condé Nast and some of these other magazine publishers that Apple is actually being a little bit more flexible in terms of letting that happen. So you're going to start seeing a lot more magazines where the print subscriber actually gets the app content at no additional price. So that helps the print business model. But yeah. you know, this is And that's how it should be. It should be we have content and you can access our content through any through the traditional print media or on the tablet or via the website 
and if you pay for it, it doesn't matter what the delivery device is because we're selling, at the end of the day, if I'm the New Yorker, I'm not selling my iPad app or my website. I'm selling the New Yorker brand, which goes back to the 1920s. Well, yeah. yeah, and that works if you're if if you that works on the web if you can find a way to make the web work tailored to each platform, but with these closed platforms like iOS, you got to go through Apple. You've got to negotiate whatever you can get if you want to have a native app, and that's the for a for a publisher or a content owner that is the drawback of taking the native app approach. You always have someone in between you and your customers. Let's talk Afros. Let's talk Afros. So last week, I asked Kirk to do a sabermetric analysis of Cocoa Crisp's performance. In this installment of the Cocoa Crisp Afro Watch, Kirk has some shocking stats. First of all, the bad news is there's been no Afro. <laughs> so Cocoa's hitting his usual 270 then. It's been an Afro-free week. Now, but, you know, and this really is where we have an exclusive here is I've been watching the game tapes in preparation for this because I have MLB TV and Coco is the leadoff hitter. So all I have to do is go to any day and pick their inning, top, you know, top or bottom of the first, and I've got my Coco Crisp update. No one else is doing this kind of research. This is an MLB exclusive on Media Loper Bebop. <laughs> no Afro this week. No. Wait, 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 wait. Unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, the announcers, the announcers don't give the Coco Crisp update. You would expect that Ray Fossey would be all over informing it. the Oakland A's fans what the status of Coco's hair is, but he doesn't. I expect more from Ray Fossey. I do. Well, too. isn't he still brain damaged from that whole Pete Rose thing? That's another. That's another story. <laughs> <laughs> from my view of the uh, game footage, watching the game tapes uh, for the past week. Clearly no Afro in sight, but he seems to be moving to some kind of thing that's not quite the official braid. So I'm hoping that it's like a, 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 a semi, you know, like a short-term deal where he the Afro could come back on a moment's notice. Now, here are the numbers. <laughs> Over the past 10 games, now Coco's been injured. He's been taking some time off. They want to make sure he's healthy throughout the season. So they're being a little conservative with him. This goes back to... To the 24th of April. Okay, over the last 10 games, he's hitting 324. Wow. Now, in that period, with an Afro, he's 9 for 16. Wow. 562. He's a 562 hitter with an Afro. Without the Afro, he's 3 for 21. That's 143. Now, he hits almost 420 points higher with an Afro. Someone needs to get this information to Billy Bean. Okay, so bottom line, if he does not wear his afro, he's going to end up with Milton Bradley on waivers. <laughs> we know that he's going to be the 2011 World Series MVP. So somehow, some way, this is going to work itself out. Mm. And I will have an update next week. This will be a new regular feature on our show. We take an album that all three of us think is an all-time great and discuss it. This week, I figured we'd start with something that was kind of obvious, but also something that is inarguably timeless, and, I think, a pretty important record for all three of us. So without further ado, I'd like to present the very first inductee to the Media Loper Great Albums Hall of Fame, R.E.M.'s Murmur.
R.E.M.'s Murmur, 1983. This is probably the only album we, we all definitely agree on. What's stunning about Murmur is that it actually won the Rolling Stone album of the year, beating Thriller, War, Synchronicity. I think my personal opinion is that <clears throat> if you line up all the kind of albums that kind of were a turning point or a pivot for the music industry, you know, you have Sgt. Pepper's or Rubber Soul in the 60s, and then never mind the bollocks, here's the Sex Pistols in the 70s, and Murmur in the 80s, and never mind in the 90s. And those, you know, arguably, for better or for worse, kicked off or changed, you know, the music scene. But it also, what it did is it delivered people into the scene. And what I think Murmur did is it took people who were like, you know, REO Speedwagon fans and brought them into the alternative music scene. So, it, it, like I said, for better or for worse, I think it, it was a game changer that just was, you know, it's, 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 a, its effect is still being felt to this day. Murmur era, there were two things that I thought would never be true. One is that I, I really never thought that R.E.M. would become a successful mainstream band. That was inconceivable to me. And the other thing was, I did not think they would ever, ever, ever last as a band as long as they have. I mean, the thought that we would be that they would have a new album out in 2011 mm. just would have been mind-boggling. I think that I have never loved anything more than as than than I loved Murmur when it first came out. I would listen to it constantly. I listened to it, and then I'd listen to it again, and then I'd listen to it again. And I I, I now love a couple more albums more than I love Murmur. But when it came out, I I I, had, I tortured everybody with that record. <laughs> well, and you could, because you're on the radio. Yeah. Well, I was. It wasn't just on the radio. It was I was playing it at my apartment. I was playing it at right. friends' apartments. But I mean, you could torture people you couldn't even see. Yes, and I did. I played every song on that album except for "West of the Fields," which is still only to me an ordinary song. But the the there was something about Murmur, and it was something about the the production values of Murmur. There was something about what Mitch Easter and the band ended up putting out that just made it listenable again and again and again and i think that to me there's very few records that that are like that 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 hold up over zillions of listenings yeah and it never it never really loses its appeal so um <clears throat> to me this would you know if i have a top 10 this is probably number one so it's it's you know top five
And the other thing about Murmur too is that REM was very much, they were very much cheerleaders. They very much were about, look, um, what Peter Buck said on the cutting edge were the acceptable ed, acceptable end of the unacceptable stuff. And they, they, they took that very seriously that, that people um, who loved them would listen to what they would say about other bands. And REM was responsible for turning me on to Husker Du and The Replacements and and probably True West and a bunch of other different bands that either toured with them. Big Star. Big Star. Yeah, Big Star. Big star. Yep. And, and that made them incredibly important beyond Murmur and beyond Reckoning, just the fact that they were... They were willing and and eloquent enough to understand that they were just commercial enough that they would draw people in who may not be interested in punk rock or new wave or whatever the fuck it was being called at the time. And with that, they were saying, look, we're just the tip of the iceberg. There are so many other bands out there that are just as good as us or better than us. And you need to listen. If you like us, you need to listen to these also. Hey, do you guys remember that um, show they did on the Murmur Tour in Hollywood at the Palace in June of 83? No. No, because you went. Yeah. You didn't. Jim, <laughs> you were invited on that road. You were invited on that road trip. Jim. I don't think I could have gone, obviously. Hey, were you, were you guys <laughs> at that? Were you, with that, were you at that show at the Hammersmith Odeon in like uh, 1989? Were you there, Kirk? Don't say this is... Don't... Okay, you're going to rub it in that I missed another Smith's show. No, no. No, no, that wasn't the hey, Smith's. Hey, Actually, Tim. That was, that was 1885. Tim, do you remember that time we went to the Star Palace and interviewed R.E.M.? Uh, that was you oh, and that's Kirk. right. <laughs> but yeah, I still remember it. I just remember going down there with the tape recorder, and I remember Peter Buck offering us a beer... And, our, and that was before we had cell phones and were able to text, because you would have texted me and said, hey, we're off yeah, to go interview our uh, I'm going to say the thing that's going to make us sound like such old. <laughs> okay. That was my 21st birthday. <laughs> wow. What a birthday. I don't think we told a single person we were doing this. I, I, I recall everybody being really pissed off at Kirk and I for, for doing it. If you brought 10 people with you, it wouldn't have worked. No. Best song on Murmur, Tim. Pilgrimage. Kirk. Uh, oh. <laughs> no, can I wait? Can I clarify sure. that? Sure. Best song in the history of music. Pilgrimage. Pilgrimage. Wow. Okay. So are we in, are we in agreement? Um, I think we are because I I I. <sighs> I think nine minus nine is like their secret great song that no one ever recognizes as a great song, but the last minute of pilgrimage is as perfect as pop music gets. Yes. Agreed. So what's wrong with Perfect Circle? A beautiful song. 
Perfect Circle doesn't have the point where they bring the bridge, they bring the chorus in over the bridge with that extra percussion, and there's like 15 voices going on in like a thousand guitars and some. I feel like some of their songs don't even have bridges. So, and that's you know that's um, that's why Pilgrimage is probably one of the most amazing. Yeah. One more thing, Tim. One more thing. You know what? I'm really um, looking forward to the potential for a GOP dream tickets, presidential hopefuls, including Newt Gingrich, who announced his candidacy today, uh, Donald Trump and Sarah Palin. I think this would be the greatest reality show ever and um, the greatest comedy show ever. So, One more thing, Kirk. I'm drinking uh, Wilco Tango Foxtrot by Lagunitas Brewery. Um, this is their one of their annual brews that's supposed to change every year. And in 2009, they had the Correction Ale. And in 2010, they were supposed to have the Recovery Ale, but it didn't happen. <laughs> so this is their Jobless Recovery Ale, which was only supposed to be last year, but it's back again. Uh, it's pretty darn good. I bought the, they were at Mission Liquor doing a tasting and talking about their beer. And, uh, last year I bought the last bottle avail, the last bottle ever sold of this beer. And it was supposed to be the last bottle ever. Uh, but apparently we haven't recovered enough. So it's back again this year. And it's called, and it's called WTF. Wilco Tango Foxtrot. (laughs) Otherwise, it's, multi, it's a multi-robust jobless recovery ale. Nice. One more thing. During this first season of Justified, you could watch it as it hit its stride. It, it started off with like a case of the week format, and then it almost instantly went to a more serialized approach, focusing on Timothy Oliphant's U.S. Marshal Raylan Givens and its arch nemesis Boyd Crowder, who was played with an otherworldly menacing calm by Walton Goggins. Each week was entertaining, and that first season as a whole was fun, but it wasn't going to top any year-end wists. That all changed this season. They brought back Goggins and deepened the mythology of Raylan's background by adding the Bennett family, who'd been running the county and had bad blood and deep history with both Raylan's family and Boyd's family. And to do that, they tapped perennial Hey It's That Guys, Margot Martindale and Jeremy Davies to play the Bennett matriarch and her heir apparent. Davies, of course, played to his strengths, and every one of his scenes was chock full of his customary twitchiness. But Margot Martindale, wow. She owned every single scene she was in and was clearly the smartest and most powerful person in the whole room. And seriously, there won't be a better supporting actress performance all year. Justified just finished its second season, and on the back of those performances and the deep in mythology, it became a great, great show. I cannot recommend this season of Justified and the first season, but especially the second season more. You need to check it out. Thank you for yet another show I won't see for a long time. It should be on Netflix Instant. 
Oh, I don't know if okay. it is or not, but it should be. It should be. As should every show. Exactly. But it may it may not be there when you want to watch it. And that's it for Media Lover Bebop Episode 3, Conversation Fear. I'd like to thank Kirk Biglione. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Kirk. Thanks, Tim. <laughs> Thanks, Ari. Like Thanks, John Boy. I'd like to thank Tim. Thanks, Jim Boy. Thanks, Timmy. Thanks, Kirk. And, Thanks. Uh, and as always, I'd like to thank everybody who listened to this. And we'll see you next week. Bye.